hearts, we pray. Forgive us, Lord, for the sake of Christ, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, cleanse and purify.
sure you've heard it said before, maybe you've said it yourself, especially during times of trial, times where we're tested. I've read the end of the book. <laughs> There's something about revelation. There's something about reading the end of the book. It gives us an assurance of our salvation, assurance of our pardon, an understanding of where we are with the Lord. In Revelation 7, 9 through 14, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these? clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, the washing of the blood of the Lamb. There is so much to know of you, Lord. There are so many things of theology, so many things of doctrine that, that we sometimes can grasp, sometimes we can't grasp. But the simple truth is that you came to redeem us from the sin that separated us, separated us from you. We thank you, Lord for the salvation that you've brought us. Those of us, all of us, who are so unworthy, who fall short, Lord, of your holiness and of your glory. And you had compassion on us and mercy. And you pour out your grace on us, Lord, daily. May we walk in that grace, Lord. May we walk in that mercy. May we represent you, Lord, in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name. In our Confession of Faith in 1689, Baptist Confession, under 8.5, under uh, several, under the, uh, of Christ the Mediator, it tells us this, the Lord Jesus, everyone if you want to read it with me, the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of God, procured reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. 
Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you all. Uh, if you want to open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 1. We are continuing our study through the Gospel of John through John chapter 1. And we talked about last week this idea of the Gospel literally meaning good news. And you might say, I thought the good news was about Jesus. Why is there a book called the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark and Luke? What is that? Well, the Gospel, the Gospels in our scripture, the four books are an account. They are a historical account of what Jesus came and did and taught his life, his death, his ministry. But it's also a theological account. It's telling us truths about who God is and what he came to do. And so that's why we're studying the scriptures. It's not just a history book in the Gospel of John. It's so much more than that. <laughs> it's telling us truths about God, what he's done in the person and work of Christ. And all the Gospels are a little bit different. So when you come to the Gospel of Matthew, you really see this emphasis on Christ as the king of the universe. When you come to Mark, you see this different emphasis as Christ the servant that came not to be served, but to serve and give his life. In Luke, you see Christ portrayed as the perfect man who never sinned, his perfect humanity. And so we're in the Gospel of John this morning, where we see the divinity of Christ emphasized, that he's not just a man, he's not just someone that walked on the earth, but he is the Word of God, he is the Son of God, he is God incarnate. And so we also see this emphasis on what Jesus came to do, this mission that he came to accomplish, that he came to save sinners, that he didn't just come for his own purposes, but he came to be the light of the world. And as we read in the prologue of John, we saw that this light came into darkness. This light came into darkness, and that the world and even his own people rejected Christ that they rejected the light, they pushed back, they didn't like it, they were blind to the light. And so we've been introduced to this person last week named John the Baptist. Many of us are familiar with him. John the Baptist was this one that we are told that came to bear witness about the light. Came to bear witness, to testify, to say that this is the light of the world. And we saw last week John said that it's not about him. It's not about John the Baptist but it's about Christ, that he's a voice. He's one's crying out, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight in the wilderness. And so last week we saw John saying, it's not about me, it's about Christ. And this week we're going to see that even more. That John is going to bear witness, not only to who Jesus is, his titles, who he is, his person, but also what he came to do. His work. You say, you might say, Kendall, we've already talked about that. <laughs> well, there's more to talk about. Okay. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 1, we'll be looking this morning at verses 29 through 34. If you want to follow along with me, I'll pray for us and then we'll look at the passage. This is the word of the Lord. The next day, he, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, 
because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for this time we get to set aside each week to not only rest from our worldly endeavors, but to worship you. We thank you for a place that we get to worship, free from persecution, free from, um, you know, the elements. It's a great blessing, Lord. And we thank you that you promise each week to meet with us, that we're not just coming here hoping that you will meet with us, but you promise by your Spirit to be with us. And so as we open up the Scriptures this morning, as we seek to know more about you and who Christ is and what he came to do through the testimony of John, would our eyes be open, not just the eyes of our flesh, but the eyes of our heart. May we see the truths in the Scriptures, may we faith rise up in us, and may we come to receive Christ and rest in Him alone for salvation, Lord. May we behold the Lamb and be changed from one degree of glory to the next. We pray all these things in your Son's name. Amen. Amen. So, we are continuing the story. We're continuing through John's Gospel. And last week we saw John the Baptist questioned. He is almost like a courtroom. He's peppered with questions. Who are you? Who are you? Who are you? These religious leaders had sent people, delegates, to come to Christ and to ask him who he was. And he's sort of a strange man, we find out. He's in the wilderness. He's wearing camel's hair and eating locusts. <laughs> and he's kind of strange. And he's telling people to repent, to turn from their sin, to be baptized in the water, and to come to faith. He's preparing the way of the Lord that this new exodus is coming by which God's people will be delivered. And the religious leaders aren't very happy about this. They don't really like this. They're content with their lives. And so they say to themselves, we don't really need to repent. We don't really need to turn from our sin. And we see throughout the Gospel of John this confrontation between Christ and the religious leaders that they don't like this message of repentance of baptism, they are content with their lives the way they are. And so last week John said, it's not about me, it's about the Christ, who's coming, and this week we see John testify that this is the Lord, the Lamb of God, the Son of God. And John is bearing witness, as I said, not only to who Jesus is, but what he came to do. And we'll look at that this morning. So that's our outline for this morning. We're going to look at John's witness to who Jesus is and to what he came to do. So if you want to look at verse 29 with me, the first words we see are the next day. So John here is simply saying, the events that we saw last week, this questioning of John the Baptist, 
these events happen the next day. And you'll see that again in verse 35, and the next day, and verse 34, or 43, the next day. And we'll see that a whole week goes by, and all of these things will be happening, and it will culminate in this great miracle at Canaan, where Jesus turns the water into wine. And so this is the second day of that week. So this is the next day from what we just saw. And then we see John standing there, and Jesus comes toward him. And he says these famous words. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And admittedly, this is sort of a strange phrase, right? <laughs> How often do we call someone a lamb? <laughs> Behold, the Lamb of Decatur. We would never say that, right? So admittedly, it's sort of a strange phrase. What does John mean here? Why is he using this language about Jesus? We would never really talk in this way. We would never really refer to someone as an animal of a place. But for the people of this day, the people that were hearing John the Baptist, this would not have been that strange. This would have been very common in one sense. Why do I say that? Because John is using a lot of Old Testament imagery in what he's saying. He's referencing back to the Old Testament. And not just anything in the Old Testament, but the sacrificial system. That when John is putting together these two things, a sacrificial lamb and the taking away of sin, the people would have had no other option but to think about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. These two concepts of a sacrificial lamb and atoning, covering, removing sins. They would have been reminded of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. And an event in the Old Testament that we call the Passover. So if you go in your Old Testament, maybe some of you have been reading through the Bible, you'll get to these things. You'll get to these sacrifices in the Old Testament, this Passover event in the book of Exodus. And you might be asking yourself, why are these here? <laughs> it feels very foreign to us. Why are there sacrifices? Why is there all this blood? Why are these animals being slain? Why are these things happening? And we see very early on in the scriptures that because God is holy, because he's just, and because man is sinful, man cannot be in the presence of God in and of himself. That if man is to come before God, that a sacrifice is to be made. You have to bring a sacrifice, a substitute has to be put forward, and the blood of that sacrifice has to be spilled. That the sin of the person has to be atoned for. And the most common event that people would have thought of when John uses this language is the Passover event. The Passover event. Which is more than just a festival in, for the Jews, but it was mainly an event in the Old Testament. Where the people of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years... They've been in bondage and slavery, and God, through Moses, promised to deliver them, to bring them out of slavery. And Pharaoh did not like this. Pharaoh did not like this. He had free labor, right? So he hardened his heart, and he did not let the people go. And so then God, through Moses, starts pouring out all these plagues on Egypt, and there's all these plagues that befall the people. The river turns into blood. Frogs come out. There's locusts. There's fire from the sky. All these trials and plagues start 
coming on the people of Egypt. And still, Pharaoh hardens his heart. He does not want to hear what Moses says. He does not want to let the people go. And so God says, I'm going to do one last play. I'm going to do one final event. And he calls it the angel of death. That I'm going to have the angel of death pass over the land and the firstborn will be killed. But God says to the people of Israel to take a lamb, to take a spotless lamb, to sacrifice it and to take its blood and put it over their door. That the angel of death might pass over your house. And so that's where we get the name Passover. <laughs> it's from the angel of death passing over those who had the blood of the lamb on their door. And so we see these sacrifices continued in many different ways throughout the Old Testament. You can read the book of Leviticus. If you ever got stuck there in your Bible reading plan, <laughs> you'll see lots of sacrifices, lots of different things going on. And so we should ask ourselves this question, why? Why these sacrifices? Why all this blood and gore, right? Why is this happening? Why could God not just extend forgiveness from heaven? Why couldn't he just take away their sin? Why couldn't he just be gracious? Why couldn't he just forgive them? I mean, we all think that way, right? Why couldn't God just do it the way that we think? And as R.C. Sproul said, this is necessary for two reasons. Because of who God is and because of who we are, right? That as we've said throughout our service, that God is holy. He's just. He's perfect. He can't be with sin. He can't dwell with sin. He has to be separate from it because he is holy. And secondly, because of who we are, that because of Adam's sin and our sin, that we are fallen, we are guilty, we are liable for our sins. And so the sacrifices were not only a way to communicate to the people and to us what sin deserved, that it deserved death, but also that a substitute was needed. That these people would have been reminded over and over again Every time they sinned, they would have to bring a sacrifice. Because they knew what their sin deserved. And instead of them being put to death, one was put to death for them. Someone else's blood was spilled so that theirs might not be. One would stand in their place as a substitute for them so that they could continue to live. To atone for, pay for, expiate their sins. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. This idea of sacrifices as substitutes for the sins of the people. And so when John here is bearing witness about who Jesus is. And he says these famous words, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. This is what the people would have been thinking about. And what John is saying here is not that Jesus is a good teacher, that he's a good moral example, that he's a really smart guy. What he's saying is that he is the Lamb of God, that he is the spotless one, the spotless Lamb without blemish, that he is the one that will take away the sins of his people, that he will be the substitute, that he will stand in their place where they should have been. He is the true Passover Lamb. And what we see here is that it's not the people providing the sacrifice, but this time it is God himself providing. That God himself 
will provide the sacrifice. And it's amazing to think about that this atonement, this taking away of sins, is not only for the people of Israel, not only for the Jews, but what does John say here? The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, both Jew and Gentile. As we read this morning from every language, tribe, people, and nation. That this Lamb is not only going to die for the people of Israel, not only for the Jews, but for Jew and Gentile. That this would have been shocking for the people of that time for, for them to hear that. That this Christ, this Lamb of God, would come for the Gentiles. So John is testifying to this. He's bearing witness to who Jesus is. He's the Lamb of God. As we see him say in the next couple of verses, He's the one that ranks before me because he was before me. So this is sort of interesting. We have to know a little bit of background here. That John the Baptist was actually born six months before Christ. He was older than Jesus. He came before him. Yet, what does John say here? He ranks before me because he was before me. Wait a second, John. You must be, you must be messed up. You must be wrong. You're born before Jesus. How could you say that this one came before you? He is understanding that this one that came, this Christ, was not just created in his birth, but he was before. He was pre-existent, that he existed before John, as we'll hear Jesus say later on in the gospel, before Abraham was, I am. That this one, this Lamb of God, is more than just a human, that he is God incarnate. He has existed before even his incarnation. So this is who Jesus is. This is John testifying to who he is. And then we see John testify to what Jesus came to do. That he came to save his people from their sins. And not only that, but he's the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. That the Old Testament scriptures bore witness that one would come from Abraham that would bless the nations. One would come that would be full of the Spirit and save his people from their sins. And we see that this is what John says here in verse 31. He says, I came baptizing with water for this purpose, that he, that is the Messiah, might be revealed to Israel. That he's saying that I've come to say this is the Messiah. This is the one promised in the Old Testament. As one theologian said, this is a public manifestation of the Messiah, the beginning of his public ministry. That as we go through the gospel, this will be the, the starting point for Christ's public ministry. It's his baptism. What does John go on to say? That I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. So this is sort of interesting that something's happening. So John's been baptizing a lot of people, right? He's been calling them to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's been calling them to turn from their sin because the kingdom of God is at hand. But then something different happens. He's been baptizing all these people, but something different happens with Christ. That this spirit, like a dove, descends from heaven and remains on him. And we can look at the other gospel accounts to see more of a detailed picture of this. But this is a unique aspect to Christ's baptism. So why is this here? Why is John mentioning this in this place 
and at this time? Well, if we go to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 1, it says these words, talking about this servant that's going to come, this Messiah-like figure. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. Isaiah says this, the Lord speaking here, I have put my spirit upon him. That this one is going to come on which the Spirit will rest. That's how we're going to know who the Messiah is. So John is testifying and saying, this is the one. The one on whom the Spirit rests, upon whom the Spirit descends, this is the Messiah. That I have put my Spirit upon him. And that Jesus is this one, this special anointed servant of the Lord. Promised in the Old Testament, this Messiah-like figure who's now being commissioned for his service as Messiah. That he's going to come and live on the earth as the special anointed servant of the Lord, not only to fulfill all righteousness, but we see this interesting phrase that John says next, that he's going to baptize with the Spirit. He's not only going to come and fulfill all righteousness, live the perfect life, be full of the Spirit, but he's going to, to dispense the Spirit. He's going to bring these benefits for his people, that as the Messiah, he won't only be full of the Spirit, but he's going to dispense the Spirit to his people. And we read about this in the book of Ezekiel in 36. It says, I will put my Spirit within you, talking to God's people. Not only is the Messiah going to be full of the Spirit, have the Spirit rest on him, but he's going to give the Spirit to his people. That this is a unique function of the Messiah, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And there's a lot of confusion about this. What is this baptism of the Holy Spirit? What does it mean? Is it sort of a second event that happens later on for the Christian, or is it something different? And what we would say is that what John is mentioning here, and what we see later on through the book of Acts and throughout the Gospels is that this is the work of salvation. This is what Christ came to do, is to not only save us from our sins, but give us His Spirit. To pour out His Spirit upon us, upon His church. And so that's what we see described here in the Gospel of John. That this Messiah, this promised one, will be full of the Spirit and will dispense the Spirit to the souls of His people. So this is John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. And so this morning, we need to listen to John, John the Baptist. We need to listen to his words. What are the first words that come out of his mouth? Behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. That this is what we need to do. We need to behold the Lamb. And John doesn't just say, behold a Lamb, but behold the Lamb. The Lamb. The unique Lamb of God. The only one that can pay for our sins. That in the Old Testament, these sacrifices were a picture. They were a shadow. They were pointing forward to this one sacrifice. That they had to do this over and over and over again. I mean, there would have been blood everywhere. Animals everywhere. They had to keep doing this. And it would be a constant reminder of their need for someone to stand in their place that they had to keep doing it over and over. And what John the Baptist is saying is, this is the Lamb. 
the one sacrifice, the one that all those other sacrifices pointed to. What does the book of Hebrews tell us? That it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But Christ came, and the sacrifice of, of himself spilled his blood once and for all, so that our sin might be atoned for. That he is the true Lamb of God. The one that all those other sacrifices pointed to. That on the cross of Christ, where his blood was spilled, the justice and mercy of God meet. The justice and mercy of God meet. That God is just. As we've said over and over this morning, we can't diminish that. We can't, we can't pull back on that. We, can't, we don't want an unjust judge. We don't want a judge that's going to let guilty people into heaven. We don't want that. We want a God who is just. But the problem is that we are guilty. <laughs> We are guilty, and we need a God that's not only just, but is merciful. And we see God say that He is merciful. So on the cross, we see the justice and mercy of God meet. We see Christ take on the sins of His people as the perfect sacrificial lamb, His blood spilled to atone for our sins. That this was not only a just act of God to punish our sins, but a merciful act of God. Because by Christ's sacrifice, by His substitutionary death, we might be made right with God. That we might be made right with God. That Christ, by His perfect obedience, always fulfilling the law of God, and His perfect sacrifice, He is able to fully satisfy the justice of God. To stand in our place, that His blood covered our guilt. That that's our problem. That's our main problem, is that we're guilty. And we all know it. And we sometimes try to act like Adam and Eve. What did Adam and Eve do? When they sinned, the first thing they did was they tried to hide. We try to hide our sin. We try to hide our guilt. We sweep it under the rug, and we try to not make a big deal about it. Or we do the second thing that Adam and Eve did. What was the second thing that they did? They tried to sow fig leaves and cover themselves. And how do we do that? We try, to, we try to cover ourselves with our own works. We try to put a pile together of our best things, like, God, here's my best. Here's what I've done. Take this. This is mine. And he says, it's not perfect. It's not good enough. But what did God do in the garden? You know what God did in the garden? It says that he covered them with the skin of an animal, foreshadowing all that Christ would come to do, that he would cover us with his perfect sacrifice. So we can't hide from our sin. We can't pile up enough good works to stand before God. We need the works of the perfect Lamb of God. We need the works of the perfect Son of God to atone for our sin, to stand in our place, and that ultimately, this is God who provides. It's God who provides. It's God who provides. And I'll end with this short story from the Old Testament. In the book of Genesis, we come to Abraham. And he's old in age, and his wife Sarah is old in age. They're over 100 years old. And God tells him that you're going to have a son. And through that son, 
is going to come many people and many nations, and actually through that Son is going to come the Messiah that blesses all the nations. And so in their old age, God gives a son to Abraham and Sarah, and his name is Isaac. And in his teenage years, God tells Abraham to go up on a mountain and sacrifice his son. And Abraham says, I'll do it. And so he takes his son, and he puts wood on his back and fire, and they go up to the mountain to sacrifice his son. And Isaac turns to his father, and he says, we have the wood, we have the fire, but where's the sacrifice? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham turns to Isaac and says, the Lord himself will provide a lamb for the sacrifice, knowing full well that he was about to sacrifice his own son. And he goes up on the mountain, and he ties his son down on the wood, and he raises his knife to strike his son, and an angel stops him and says, Stop. The Lord has provided a ram in the thorns in the thicket. And so this ram is sacrificed instead of Isaac, his only son. But in the cross of Christ, another son of God, another promised one from Abraham, ascended a mountain with wood on his back, a crown of thorns, except this time the knife didn't stop. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. It was the will of God to crush him. The perfect Son of God, the one that never sinned, so that we might be made right. So as we come this morning, as we look to this Lamb that was slain, may we look to Christ. May we have faith in His perfect sacrifice, that we can't beat ourselves up enough for our sins. We can't work our way up to God. We need the Lamb who was pierced for our transgression, who was crushed for our iniquities, that God Himself has provided the Lamb, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides. And as we come to the book of Revelation, we're reminded of what we read this morning. It is those that have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb that are made white. It is the red that makes white. May we wash our robes in that this morning. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for the Lamb the perfect spotless lamb, the one that was slain before the foundation of the world, that this plan of redemption was not a surprise to you, it was not a plan B, it was your plan from the foundation of the world, to save a people for yourself by the sacrifice of your son, that he came to earth to accomplish redemption and by his spirit save a people that it would have faith in Him, that would be justified, that would be adopted into God's family, Lord. Help us this morning to trust in that. It's a simple faith. As we sang this morning, the dying thief, the thief on the cross next to Christ, rejoiced to see his Savior bled right before him. May we have that sort of faith, as simple as it may be, as small as a mustard seed. May we look this morning to Christ, the Lamb slain, the sacrifice that you've provided for our atonement, for our sin. 
May we rest in Christ this morning, and may we trust in you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we come to the Lord's Supper, as we come to this act of communion, where each week we take the bread, we take the wine, and we remember. We remember this lamb slain, whose blood was spilled, whose body was broken, so that we might be made right. Who stood in our place as our substitute to atone for our sins. And that what we're doing up here is not re-sacrificing Christ, who was sacrificed once for all, but we're by faith partaking of Christ's sacrifice of himself. That as surely as we drink the wine by faith, our sins are forgiven. And as surely as we eat the bread by faith, Christ's body was broken for us. And so... If you're not a Christian, if you're not believing in Christ, if you haven't been baptized, if you haven't professed Christ as your Savior, then these elements mean nothing. They have no meaning because we're not resting in Christ. So we would ask that you, part, that you don't partake, that you stay in your seat and contemplate the gospel and think about this great work of Christ. But if you are trusting in Christ this morning, if your hope is in Him, then this is good news. This is where we remember and believe that Christ has died for the forgiveness of our sins. And so we take the wine and we drink it and we remember what Christ has done. We take the bread and we break it and we remember that Christ's body was broken. So we come both confessing our sin, knowing that we need a Savior, but also rejoicing knowing that Christ has done it. Christ has done it. The sacrifices happen. We don't have to re-sacrifice ourselves. That we just need to look by faith to the Savior, to the one who was on the cross. So come this morning. We'll form a line here in the middle. We'll take the elements and then circle back to your seat and we'll partake of them together. We have both wine and grape juice for those that want um, something different. So the, the bread and the wine come as you're able.
each week we take the bread, we remember what Christ has done, we believe that he's done it, and we eat and we believe that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of all of our sins. In the same way, we take the cup of wine and we remember what Christ has done, that his perfect spotless blood was poured out for our sins. We remember, we believe that Christ's body and blood was broken and spilled for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Amen. If you want to stand with us, we will respond to God out of joy, remembering his great faithfulness to save us, protect us, preserve us, and we'll sing the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness.
Join with me in hymn number 13 of the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here this blessing from the book of Revelation. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace as you go this morning. <laughs> 